Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody. It's Kevin, and it's episode 300 of the Talking Biotech podcast. Today's episode is hosted by Allie Kennedy. And Allie and I got together at a local coffee place that has a little background noise. And as you'll hear, my outstanding microphones used in the process of creating a high-quality podcast have the unfortunate quality of picking up grinders and the orders through the drive-thru. However, it was a great conversation, and I don't want to start over. So, I would ask you to please kindly focus on the conversation, and please... Please forgive the distraction. After all, it's the 300th episode, and it's a reason to kind of uh, have a little party rather than think about the uh, technical details. And as always, I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity to do this. And thank you so sincerely for listening to 300 episodes of the Talk to Science. Hello and welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's a weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people on the planet. I'm Allie Kennedy. This is episode 300 of the Talking Biotech Podcast, and I'm here with someone you might be familiar with, Dr. Kevin. <laughs> yeah, hey, thanks for having me on. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here today to talk a little bit about... Um, a whole series of incidents that happened back in 2015. And so I figured we could start at the beginning. So how did that all get started? Well, it's actually kind of, it's cool to be able to do this. Yes. Because uh, all of these things I have barely talked about. And it's written a little here and there. I've mostly kept this kind of quiet, you know, I, just mostly because I wanted it behind me. Yeah. But now we're six years past and maybe it's a good time to talk about it. So, you know, that that's, you know, that's where we are. Yeah. Um, I think the whole thing started in... February of 2015, where I got a weird email. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah, I got a weird email that said, uh, there's this group that wants all your emails. And they want all your emails because they think you're working for uh, big companies and what you do. You so know. that would be U.S. right to know. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, they said, and I didn't know what this was. Oh, this is super weird. You right. know, if they want to, if they want to know stuff, just call me. You know? <laughs> and, the, and so the first thing I did was... Um, I called the university and said, what's this about? And he said, well, this is real common. You know, researchers get these. And then I, the second thing I did was call U.S. Right to Know. And I said, yeah. hey, what can I do for you? And they said, we want your emails. And I said, yeah, but, you know, what are you, questions? You know, I'm happy to help you, whatever you need. And they said, we just want the emails. And I said, yeah, but, you know, what can I tell you? You know, hey, I'm an open book. Let me know. And they said, we just want the emails. Mm. So that's where it really all started. So they didn't really give you a chance to to speak to U.S. Right to Know personally, did they? Well, well, no. I, I spoke. I called them. Did they interview you? Um, no, that was it. That was it. <laughs> so that was the only communications. You yeah, had it them, wasn't so. a question of um, of them really wanting to know. It was them wanting to be able to construct a narrative that they found favorable to sure. their uh, donors and you know stakeholders. 
So they picked you out specifically. Was it so? From what I understand, from what I read um, about U.S. Right to Know, they were finding people that were writing for a website called GMO Answers. Is that correct? So you had been writing or answering questions on that website for a while. Yeah, I was answering questions, and it was a cool idea because you know for years I was doing that, but I would do it with emails yeah. or on Reddit as an ex, uh, um, ask me anything, right. you know, expert, and it was good. And it was great because you'd get emails and people would ask questions and I would answer them, but it was always the same questions yes. and same thing over and over again. <laughs> so it was really cool to be able to kind of catalog them all in one place. And so that is what the beauty of that website was. Yeah. Were you picked out specifically or were there other contributors to this website that were also kind of got a Freedom of Information Act for their emails too? Well, I was, I was picked out primarily because um, I was a very visible voice. Sure. And, and, but also because I live in the state of Florida and work for the state of Florida. And Florida has about the loosest records of any state in the union. Yeah. And so the Sunshine Act, which is really you know, a very good thing, it allows for transparency, which is a wonderful idea. The problem is, is that it was used by these kinds of organizations to obtain a kind of a like a, a massive listing of everybody who might be involved. Yeah. So in other words, you could get emails from somebody who was in a state with very narrow public records laws because they came from me. So it was a way to kind of not just get me, but um, but get into everybody else too. That makes sense. And when, when I say get me, I mean that, that I knew from the beginning that this was going to be a harvest and reinterpret and construct narratives from my words right it turns out i was exactly right so were there was there a particular topic that we're grabbing onto because i know you're talking about a multiple a multitude of things you're talking about glyphosate on there we were talking about um, genetic modification was it the gmo topic that really is what this organization opposes pretty much yeah. it was the folks who did this ran the labeling campaigns in california and then in 2012 and 13 yeah. that failed and so they were a little bit out for revenge. And that's kind of where this all came from. And uh, I was someone who had lots of discussion about the uh, labeling laws and I and, and wasn't in favor of them, still really am not because of yeah. uh, lots of reasons. But it, but they, I was kind of a good person to target. Yes, I can see that. So you asked right to know reaches out, they let you know that they've already gotten your emails, right? It wasn't up to you. You didn't have to do anything. It was just simply that they had access to them. <laughs> well, no, that they, they send a note to the university, and the uh, university, as a, as a public entity, has an obligation to produce these documents when requested. And, you know, that's great. And uh, the only problem that I have with this is that it's abused. And so folks like this are very good at abusing these systems. And they do it in a way to collect as much information as they can to try to construct narratives. Not necessarily true, taking things out of context, all that stuff. I, I saw that happening from the beginning, and I was exactly right. And how many emails did they have access to in the end? Well, the first one was about 4,500. Wow. But then it was more, and then it was more, and then it was the food babe getting more, and right. then it was just anonymous requests. And then it turned into last year, um, or maybe it's two years ago, 2019, it was somebody anonymously asked for all, any documents related to travel, um, and which meant like the invitations and all of the other relevant documents, any receipts, anything else. And the thing with travel is, is that you can travel, like if I go to speak to Alberta Beef, right. you know, in Calgary, 
Um, I could book a plane ticket through the university and book a hotel through the university and a rental car through the university and then have Alberta Beef uh, reimburse the university and all the, you know, there's a lot of intermediate and middle people. So I just buy the ticket and then they would reimburse me personally. And that way it gave me a little more flexibility with time. You know, when you buy it with the university credit card, they want a receipt right away. They need So it just was a way of me kind of being able to manage this without having the university as a middleman. The university didn't necessarily have all these records, but I did somewhere and I was compelled to produce them if I had them. So I spent all every day Monday all day for about six months just producing documents that went to this requester and it was a massive waste of my time and nothing ever came of it right right because they already had during the first time that they requested your emails they already had grabbed onto the one soundbite that they wanted to push right yeah they were but these were just in a way i was thinking it was just nuisance it was a way of keeping me out of the laboratory and keeping me from doing my job sure and you know jeffrey smith did it i mean so many different people piled in and wanted documents, and and it was it became a tremendous financial burden for the university because the university has to have a lawyer go through every document to ensure it doesn't um, violate HIPAA or um, what's the other one or FERPA right. laws. So they had to go through all the every document, and so that it's enormously expensive. Wow, that's quite a thing. So then they take these emails and directly hand them to the New York Times. Is that right? Well, that's... Back in 2015. Yeah, USRTK handed a select portion of them to... Okay. And now, this is me interpreting what I heard um, and what we know from Discovery and my case against the New York Times, which we can talk about. Um, they, uh, the USRTK handed essentially the story along with the supporting documents to Eric Lipton, who was a okay. reporter at the New York Times, and said, here you go, go get them. And, uh, and Lipton is a guy who uh, works with corporate uh, lobbying and all that kind of stuff. So to say that this is a guy who's lobbying on behalf of the chemical industry uh, to lie about science, um, this is red meat to Lipton. Sure. And, you know, it perks up his ears right away. I'm sure it's what he does. But um, in the first place, he kind of said, no, I don't want to do this. Not interested. Not my cup of tea. And we know from Discovery that, you know, they were persistent. RTK was persistent about, no, you got to do this. This is a major thing. He's lobbying for the companies. Um, and, uh, and, and they really had to talk him into doing it. Yeah. yeah. So U.S. Right to Know is very pushy about all this. It's oh, yeah. interesting. Uh, do, what, I mean, what was the thing that RTK grabbed onto and really wanted to push? Why, why do you think they were so persistent? Yeah, so they, they out of all the emails that they received, found uh, one that was of interest. And it was one where the university had received a donation to a science communications program that I was running. That came from Monsanto. Right. And it was, and the thing that made it problematic was that it was on form letter, um, a boilerplate thing from the company that said, here is this donation of blank to use as you want in your uh, research and outreach efforts, you know. Right. And and so, you know, it it was one of those things where for anybody else it would have said, you know, if, if it was written specifically to me, it would have said for the communications program outreach. But because it said research, they said, aha. I see. It's funding all of his research and that's and probably paying him too. So that And that's the way they were able to frame it. Right. Right? That I'm just bought off by companies when actually not a penny went to me. Right. And actually in the end, not a penny of it was used. Yes. Um, so why do you think, though, that Monsanto 
wrote that check? What was the what was the premise for them to yeah. submit a check to that program? That's cool. Yeah, in 2013, I think, um, or maybe 14, um, I was at a, a meeting where uh, we have well, that University of Florida meeting, uh, the genetics, Florida genetics. We have it every year at a hotel right. out on the beach, and students give talks, and uh, we always have some industry people come to give talks about working in industry and what that's like, and that's preparing for our students. Right. Well. Um, the guy who came that year, he made a comment to me, like, your students are really, you know, really well prepared. They really know how to give good talks. And, they, sure. and, I, and I said, yeah, but that's because we work on communication and we talk about communication. And I, you know, really spend a lot of time with my students and how they present their work. And he said, oh, well, we got to talking. And he said, we really should be doing more of this. And what would it take to get you to go to other universities? I said, I already do that. Right. Just it doesn't have any money in it, you know. It's just I have very low amounts of donations to that. And he said, "Well, we have extra money at the end of the year that we could probably help finance some of those trips to other universities, so you could teach in other places." And it was money that was used for putting out the donuts, yeah, you know, so that you could have people actually show up or buying sandwiches for lunch or. Um, you know, putting up Subway sandwiches or, right. and then it would cover my, my um, an extra night of a hotel. If I was speaking somewhere, I would stay the extra day and do the workshop. So it wasn't even covering airlines or anything like that. That was not the objective. It was to take the talks I was already doing and give me the time to run the workshop for faculty and students. And I was doing this already, right? you know, just on my own dime. And they would have would have made it possible to do a lot more. And at that time, you were doing lots of talks around oh, yeah. the country about uh, GMOs. Is that right? Well, um, more about some. It depends. Sometimes it was about biotechnology yeah. and how it worked and the mechanisms, so that people were more fluent in talking about the science. But it was more about the science of the communication strategy. Yeah. How do you have uh, important messages and controversial or contentious subjects actually land and make a difference? Makes sense. And so that's what I was really talking about. That makes sense. Yeah, and science communications is still huge in your work, um, thankfully. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, it is. It, it, and, 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 you know, we can get to that, too. Um, sure. You know, that that's a real heartbreaker. I, I just learned I won a major award. Yeah. And, 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 um, and it, it's, such, it's so bittersweet because I can't celebrate that with my own university. Right. And, you know, we'll talk about that later. But, but the basic idea was that this, was, this money was really just to help me do more of what I was already doing in teaching about science communication. Absolutely. And then there was um, one other instance that I read about where you received a smaller donation from this company, from Monsanto, to go to Colorado and speak at an oh, agricultural <laughs> thing, right? Is that right? That wasn't, even, that wasn't even a donation. I got a call from an old friend of mine. So you know, when you're a plant scientist, you yeah. have friends who went in the industry, and someone who was out there called and said, you know, we, um, that our growers use our seeds and they want to know more about the technology yeah. so they can talk about it. And it was around labeling. There was some other stuff happening in Colorado at the time because they have a limited number amount of irrigated farmland that some of that's public land that is leased to farmers and has been for decades and very limited number of, de of, uh, of irrigated acres. And these right. farmers grew whatever they grew on it. Most of it was sugar beets and corn. Okay. It was all genetically engineered. Sure. And they were coming under fire for growing those crops. And the, mm. and the county said, well, Boulder County, um, I think it was Boulder County, said, um, 
well, no, you, you know, voted in like the two two against one in their right. county co- council that to get get the GE crops out of there, and the farmers needed to push back, so they wanted more information. Sure. And so this friend of mine who worked for Monsanto contacted me and said, "Could you come out and do it?" And I yeah. said, "Sure, I'd love to talk to the farmers." Um, why don't you guys do it? They said, well, they don't want to hear it from the seed from company. Big industry, they they right. want to hear it from an academic who's independent. All right, cool. Right. So I agreed to do it, but I don't have a budget to fly to Colorado to talk to farmers. Right, of course. And so um, they said they cover my expenses. Right, and that makes total sense to me. Yep. I mean, I think I think people are uncomfortable with the idea of a big industry coming and saying, this is why GMOs are safe, and they want a direct researcher who actually knows the science to do it. Yeah, and, and so, 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 so they, so they pay, pay for my coach plane ticket. Right. And my rental car, and two nights in a lousy hotel. <laughs> um, well, actually, it was bad one night and good the other. And then a um, uh, the gas for the rental car. That makes sense. Yeah, so that, yeah. that's good. They didn't cover meals or anything like that. Right. And it was just the basics to get well, you there. And they probably would have, but I was eating anyway, so yeah. I never feel comfortable sending a bill to somebody else for that. Um, just the things that are atypical expenses, and it came out to something like eight hundred. Yeah, it's a small sum, right? So it was eight hundred sixty-four dollars, and um, that they reimbursed me for, right? And so, but in the public records request and in other contexts, the photocopy of that check for eight hundred sixty-four dollars yeah. and eighteen cents to Kevin. Fulta from the Monsanto company was like, aha, we got him. <laughs> exactly. It's like, no, we did. I got reimbursed. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like they kind of took these donations and framed it like Kevin Fulta is being paid to produce certain data. Right. Is that is that kind of the idea? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and that it was, and as they said, uh, paid to defend GMOs, which is not what I do. That's simply what the science reflects. We talk about the strengths and limitations of technology. Mm-hmm. That's what I always did, and that's what I always did. Yeah. I'm, and they would, and even Lipton in his article said that I, I promoted their products. I don't promote products. I don't know I, outside of Roundup. I don't even know what their products are. Yeah. Like I can't say they have this seed line or this seed line or you should really try these seeds. I have no <laughs> clue. And I live in Florida. We don't grow that stuff. Right. Um, so it was it was kind of strange that they would paint it the way I did. They did. And, you know, but that was the beginning. Lipton in the article said that I, you know, traded grants for uh, lobbying cred. Right. And there was no grant and there was no lobbying. Right, right. <laughs> but this is how, what the article said. Yeah, it's incredibly and, damaging. Uh, horrible. It yeah. changes your life when you realize that when, when it's like this quid pro quo, you know, I we give you money, you go out and talk. And that's what they framed yeah. it as. And he even said in the article that I found myself among the... Uh, industry inner circle of lobbyists and executives. And I'm like, who are you talking about? Right. <laughs> You're simply talking about your own work. And the and I guess what, how it happens is that Monsanto said, this is a great PR choice for us to have you talk because they, people want someone they can trust and they can't really trust Monsanto. That's right. So it's just unfortunate that you found yourself between kind of a rock and a hard place with having the data and supporting these ideas. Well, it, but that's what science is all about. That's right. Yeah. And, and going out and talking about the, the beautiful things we can do with cool technology. Sure. And I still do that. Yeah. But it's 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 when you do that, you're, you're sticking your, your neck out a little bit. And that's what bothers me so much is that after all this went down, and we didn't even talk about the fallout from that, but it was... Um, I had people come up to me at meetings, scientists come up and say, God, I wish I could do what you do, but I just can't, I can't risk getting into that situation, and which is horrible to hear. It is. 
do you believe that there should be a full separation between academics and industry, or do you think there's a reasonable level of overlap that can occur? There's a, a lot of overlap that needs to occur because we're partners in this. Where the, the land grant university system was established by the Morrill Act in 19, 1862 to help industry with, with the power of academic science. Yeah. What we learn in research, getting out into the field and aiding industry and building industry and cooperating with industry as a trusted independent a partner, that's the whole idea. And so we're supposed to be working with industry. It's in our job description for 150 years now. And people are frightened to because of fallout like you experienced. It, it's very true. Yes. It's, it's really sad. It's and, really sad. And after that New York Times article uh, was published, I mean, it was like a, a, a bomb dropped on your on your career. I mean, it was yeah. really, really devastating. And it, what, what kind of effects did you experience immediately after that article? It was so many levels. Um, it was personal. Um, I had... Uh, a bicycle club that I rode with here in town that took me off the mailing list. I mean, the guys I rode with every week took me off the mailing list, and I never rode with them again. Even after some of them said, no, you put them back on, I still didn't feel welcome there. And um, the fallout that we had by people putting stuff in the local paper and putting stuff in our local Craigslist, like really bad stuff. Um, stuff about my deceased mother. I mean, just like horrible stuff about my wife at the time. You know, it made it so um, uncomfortable to even be in town here. And this is awful. I read I read that someone had said, oh, your deceased mother would be ashamed of you yeah. on Craigslist, which is just yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, and, and on any kind of social media just was destroyed with, like, trolls and, like, bots that were putting on horrible things. And then you started I mean, to receive threats, didn't you, direct oh, threats? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, but, but, you know, threats I don't get too worried about because yeah. it, it, it they, if any... Nobody, if someone really wants to hurt you, they don't threaten you first. Sure, sure. <laughs> they show up and do it. But it's certainly and, unsettled. And it's, and it, I always kind of took it okay. I'm, yeah. I'm good at taking care of myself and I don't worry about it. My wife at the, at the time was afraid to open the door. Yeah. And, you know, this is back in, you know, 2015, kind of when Amazon and all those folks were really starting to do like deliveries to the homes and yeah. all that stuff. And, you know, someone would push the doorbell and she would freak out. Right. You know, she would, because she was convinced that someone was going to show up at the house when I wasn't home and throw acid in her face. Right. And this was one of her concerns. And it was heartbreaking because you started to see how this was affecting other people because it was affecting me so hard. And, and I was department chair at the time. I had someone break into my office in the middle of the night. Um, they messed with the computers and took some information off the hard drive in the middle of the night. We just know that that happened. And they poured coffee all over everything. Just spilled uh, some sort of liquid all over everything. And we figured out how they got in. It was like during the day they came and popped the little side lock on the door so that it would be unlocked at night. And that's it. And so I had to take my name off the lab, take my name off my um, uh, greenhouses. I couldn't have anything associated with me there. And how did this affect your career in science communications at the time? I mean, it was a huge part of your life to go around and do yeah. conferences and talk to people. How did that affect? Yeah, canceled. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had talks that I was scheduled to give canceled at universities. Uh, NC State had me coming. They canceled me. Um, a bunch of other ones. And, and, it, when you, and the worst ones were probably here in town where I used to speak in grade schools almost weekly. And that stopped. And you, know, you think about it, there's not a lot of professors doing that. Not enough. 
and I was doing it and I was removed from doing it. And just, it was, it was just, and I, it, even the university had people trailing me to conferences to see what I was talking about. It, it was weird. That is weird. And I remember it was farm to city days and all these things I used to speak at. And I, you know, I'm not a flamethrower. I'm not out there like saying, you know, screaming about technology or, you know, being banging the table. I'm talking about how we build trust with our clientele and our stakeholders and how we can make a difference by uh, building trust with the people who um, who are in our communities. And we've talked a lot about that, how, how essential it is to talk to people who are doubtful of science. I mean, there's reason to be doubtful of science, but there's also a lot of reason to reach out and say, hey, look, science can be accessible and we can talk about it. And our failures in that area is why we have new variants of uh, COVID virus. Absolutely. I mean, this this is we are living the reality of of denying science communication and ineffective uh, education in science. We are living that reality right now, and this is the reality that I was realistically, personally, and professionally punished for, and and remain to this day. Um, you know, you don't know the opportunities you didn't get. And that's where we're talking about damages in the New York Times case. You know, how do you know the, the monetary value of the opportunities you never received? And But just when this is permanent, when you put it in the New York Times, you know, you Google me, that's up there. Yeah. As is everything else. And I remember when I came into your class, your plant cellular and molecular biology class, one of the first things you posted, you were like, you might Google my name and you might see these things. Yeah. And that's something that you have to disclose. Well, that's that's why I, I learned when I used to teach um, other classes that I have to be out in front of it because I'll be talking and doing uh, teaching a class. I mean, we've neglected to say that you were a student in my class. That's how I know yes, you. Yes, yes. <laughs> we've been doing research on COVID together. Yeah, so. I'm very excited that you've been doing, um, that you've been taking on communications opportunities yeah. like this. So um, the thing is, is that I was teaching in a class, and, you know, if you do a good job, students go, I wonder what else he teaches or what else he does or, you know, where can I learn more? And they go online and they find out that you're this uh essentially a criminal working for companies to lie about science and you know pictures of you with the pinocchio nose and with the you know all the other things you know uh that are there that are just all awful and it, it takes you and it follows you to the grave you know it's always there but that's why i go in the class and i say first thing we're going to talk about is uh google images and what you're going to find out about me on a google search you got to get out in front of it if you didn't do something wrong. That's just science crisis communication 101. Yeah. And when we talk about um, science denialism as well, it seems that U.S. right to know is anti-technology in many spheres and kind of anti-Western medicine and anti a lot of interesting <laughs> things. Yeah, they're so going after other good folks in the COVID sphere now. And right. it's really unfortunate. It is unfortunate. And so once this New York Times article dropped and all of this mayhem begun, then you had a law firm contact you, right, and asked to represent you. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, it was, it was very clear to many people that this really crossed the line. And yeah. um, I was working with a law firm in Philadelphia who we filed a libel lawsuit in federal court um, indicating that, that the information that was gathered was used in a false light, meaning they were, they were used, everything was used to frame me as something I was not. Yeah. And that's what the story was. The whole story, it started out with, um, uh, he, uh, you know, the first line was, uh, researchers trade grants for lobbying cred. That was what it said in the subhead. And then the whole thing was about sales are really good on Monsanto soybeans. And it's a, an elite club of academics who are out there doing this. And is in, and then, uh, 
it, it just like it, it sets it all up and then it says meet Kevin Fulta. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and so it was it was it was very much set up with this here indicting an entire group of people but yeah. really just focusing on me. And the original we learned in discovery the original piece um, was all about me and it was just you know here's what a turd this guy is. And uh, the editors at New York Times says you can't do that. You know, I mean, you don't really have the evidence to back that up. And, you know, but what if we fold in some other people? So then they started to fold in people who were actually paid by industry and who do stretch the boundaries about the accuracy of the science. So it it put me into a club with people who are known to kind of stretch the boundaries um, and who are paid. And, uh, and so it gave, put me in false association. It said that I, uh, you know, uh, go, it was ghostwriting articles, which is the kiss of death in academia. Um, so it, it, was, it was really bad. So this was something that we were going after the New York Times. All I wanted was an apology. Sure. The public editors re- did not acknowledge or return even an email when I said, could you please just get me an apology and clarification? Yeah. That's all I wanted. So please just give me something that when somebody posts this, that I can post, okay, here's where we were wrong. That's all I wanted. And there was never any point in this article that they could point at any specific data, any research, and say this is falsified, right? No, they even said this, there's no, there's nothing wrong with his research. Or or his research is probably fine, but... Yeah. And so it really attacked you as a science communicator, not a researcher. And, but it also put in cast my research in sure. but which is funny because I don't do any research associated with these companies. Right. And so it, it just was, it just put a big question mark on my reputation which i worked really hard for and actually is pretty good yeah you know i mean i always was the guy who went the extra mile for students and for faculty and for everybody and um i was was very heavily invested as a department chair in the career advancement of faculty and in every single student i mean sorry yeah it's hard to talk about um i just remember that at graduations oh i don't want to get into it um you know, I, I knew every student, and I knew where they were at. It just, I, I don't even, sorry. It's okay. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, this is, and that's the sad part about all this stuff, is that they thought they were doing damage to me personally, and they did. They really damaged everything I do, which was in the public interest. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they actually. And you were department chair. Yeah, yeah. And, and they, and they went on to ask you to resign shortly after this article. So. Then eventually came down because of a lot of a lot of things, but mostly a lot of pressure from different groups. And, um, you know, I think universities just get sick of it. Yeah. yeah. It's exhausting for the university, I'd imagine, but it's hard for you, like you said, to be winning awards and be unable to say, look, I'm yeah. associated with the University of Florida because you've been sort of cast yeah. out of the sphere of, you know. Yeah, and, so, and that's the really sad part about yeah. it is that the rest of the world of science they see this going on and they go all right this guy's a saint you know he's doing what what all of us need to do and he's paying a price for it and let's recognize that and you know thank him for what he does um you know uh, but when it's your university and they're getting the hate mail on a daily basis and they're getting complaints even from other people in science communication and of course i'm working hard so i'm making missteps here and there and all that stuff gets amplified and stuff that isn't really bad gets you know described as scandal and you know eventually a university that's trying to raise its visibility and do all the right things says this is a liability 
and so you so it 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 causes it causes divisions here on my home turf yeah you know where i where even today you know they have told me no you can't do this anymore it's really unfortunate because it seems like a university would choose to back scientists over organizations that are anti-technology you know it sucks because we know the source yeah but it's one of these things where they don't want any controversy right they're all risk averse of course, and, and and I understand that too from too. from an objective perspective, but it is really damaging. Sure, you think about don- donors who decide not to donate. You think about sure. you know, well, well, we certainly Whole Foods isn't going to donate to the University of Florida, you know, right, right, right. and and so you start to see how that can affect things. But I still come from the old school thing of if if we can't as a land grant you know, public university be the leaders of difficult conversations, then who can? Yeah. And that's our job. And so when I was told to back down from it, it was devastating. And this is 2019. Heartbreaking. Just absolutely heartbreaking. They had me cancel planned talks that I had in the books for two years. That they said, call them up and tell them you're not coming. Right. And I said, I can't do that. That's not professional. I said, you're doing it. You're shutting it down. Wow. And, uh, you know, I had administrators wag a finger in my face and say, it's not your job. You go back and do research and teach. And that's it. And they changed my appointment from research and extension to research and teaching yeah. gave me a very large teaching load your class right. um, along with some other courses which take me out of the ability to travel and speak so um, I was supposed to end this podcast which heartbreaking luckily I do all this as outside work right so, so none of this is associated with the university anymore that's right. officially that's right and none of it is right. none of the stuff I do for communications outreach is um, I, I used to spend 70 hours a week working for the university and 20 hours a week in the communication space, and I still do about the same now. What, what keeps you loyal to the University of Florida? What keeps you there? Um, I, I, I adore the faculty. I adore the mission. I love the, the growers in the state that I work for. Um, I, I think it's an amazing group of people, and I have great loyalty to it. You know, I, I love where I live. I, everything is really good about it. I've had opportunities to leave. And I really don't want that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I had oppor- opportunities in leadership at really good universities and really cool positions. Yeah. But you know, I, 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 this is my home. This is where I'm at. And you know, um, it, it, it's. Uh, I think I'd rather just continue to play with it here. Yeah. Rather than um, go somewhere else. Go somewhere else. Yes. Yeah. So this. Um, you had a, so let's talk about your research in 2015. How has your research changed, your topic of research changed from 2015 to now? Do you still work, were you working with strawberry genomics then too? Yeah, we were doing strawberry genomics. We were doing a lot of work with light and everything was cool and yeah. everything, you know, and we still do that same kind of stuff right. now. But it's actually kind of funny that I do, a, I don't really have a niche anymore. Yeah. Um, after being an administrator for five and a half years, you kind of lose your research edge and then... Um, you know, they hired another person who does the strawberry I see. work now. So it's not the same. And so I'm trying to, I mean, what I always kind of call my chrysalis moment here. Um, you know, grant money's run out. Um, I'm kind of flying on the smallest lab I've ever had, which is yeah. just a shame. I love training students and postdocs, and um, I don't have any anymore. You know, I mean, and, and all the people who say he's in the pocket of big industry, let me know when those checks start showing up. Because, <laughs> I mean, it's it's really sad for me. It's really hard for me to, to have such a small program. And then this last year, just, you know, preparing to teach classes for the first time, upper-level classes for the first time, and then grade exams and do the exams correctly. 
I didn't give you guys a Scantron sheet and said fill out the bubbles. No. I said write essays, you know. Yeah. And trying to do all those things correctly, it really robs you of your research time. I'm sure. And so I've been trying to rebuild and write grants, and it's just, it's really, really, really been a challenge. Well, it was really, I mean, it sounds like in 2015, it was near scorched earth as, yeah. a, as a result of this. And not only your academic career, your research career, but also your personal life. I mean, it was a oh, yeah. really difficult time all around. Oh, yeah. Everything went to hell. And yeah. Then, and then when you had, um, you know, when when we get notices from the police saying, um, you know, we have credible threats, and so there's going to be police stationed outside of your building. I mean, come on. You know, when my lab has to work with the doors locked. Yeah. You know, people in my lab have to work with the doors locked. When I have to take our names off the doors. When I take their names off my website. When I have to be, I mean, it was everything to protect the people around me and, um, in, and then getting a phone call, you know, when I'm visiting Cornell, yeah. getting a phone call from someone from the FBI domestic terrorism task force saying, yeah, you know, watch yourself. And when you give your talk, make sure you know how to get out of the building. Yeah. You know, I mean, come it's on. It's terrifying. Stuff. And, it, do you, and do you think the source of these threats are just individuals, or do you think that they're groups? It's, I don't know. Yeah. I, uh, it, it's, and, 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 and again, it doesn't bother me. You know, if somebody would have came after me, you'd bring it. I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't need, it doesn't, that doesn't phase me. I, I, it, it, I don't make decisions based on fear. And I just, am, it's just the way I'm wired. And, but it has an effect on everybody around you and on your employer and on your people who work with you. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it does affect your decisions. And it's, so it, it is a, um, it's, it, it's, it's terrorism. Right. And so you go and you, and this um, law firm from Philadelphia assists you in a lawsuit against the New York Times. And how does that go? Is that versus the New York Times directly or is it versus Eric Lipton? Yeah, Eric Lipton and the New York Times. I see. And, and, and it was the first time he was ever sued, and he was deposed. Um, I was to be deposed. It never happened. Um, we deposed, uh, uh, what's his name, Gary Ruskin, who was an absolute jerk. And that's the founder of the U.S. US right, right to Know. To know. Yeah, right. thank you. Yeah, and uh, you know Lipton, what was great about Lipton was we got all of his notes from our conversation. When he originally called me and we had a conversation, I was very happy to talk to him <laughs> because I thought, here comes the paper to the rescue. Yeah. They're going to tell the truth and make this go away. I didn't know that he was commissioned by U.S. Right to Know to do the takedown. And as the conversation went on, I started to hear where it was going. And i talking to him, and I'm kind of getting the idea that, wait a minute, he's not on my side here. And I was giving him quotes. I was saying things to him, whatever. And um, at the end, he said, what is it like to be a tool of the industry? And, and that's I, the nail in the car. And, and I thought, oh, man. Yeah. He is going to go. And after a week or two, um, after that interview, it sat so heavy with me that he was going to write the smear piece. And um, I, I wrote him an email. I said, can I talk to you again? You know, and he called and we talked. And I said, Eric, you know, I don't like the way this went down. And is there can any way that we can talk more about this? Or, or you know, can I at least see what you're going to put out? He goes, no, it goes out tomorrow. And the next day, there it was. Yeah. And then the storm began. Right, right. But the, but the, you're back to your point. Um, in the uh, discovery, we got copies of his notes where I said something like, um, uh, nobody tells me what to think. I'm no fan of corporations. Right. And he just put in, nobody tells me what to think. 
because he could selectively omit the words that were not consistent with his story to reverse what I was saying. Yeah. Like, reverse my words. And my it was intention. clearly twisted, but the courts decided that that was his First Amendment right, was to twist your words however Yeah, so that, that's right all the medium. Yeah, that's ultimately where it went. Um, reporter's privilege, that it was First Amendment, you know, very heavy First Amendment lawyer, or, I mean, an attorney who, um, who made a, uh, what do they call it, a uh, bench decision where sure. it never went to a jury. If it went to a jury, I would have won this thing. But he made a decision and threw it out, and we had a choice to appeal it. But I was exhausted. And it would have been of incredible personal cost to you yeah, to appeal it. It would have cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And I just, you know, I, I was already rebuilding a reputation as best I could. And, and so that's really what it was all about was, you know what, I'm just going to have to live with drag this anchor the rest of my life. And that's it. Right. And so I'll just keep doing more good work and see if I can outrun it. That makes sense. And then shortly afterward, too, a month after that, there was an article <laughs> written um, by a guest, a guest on one of your older podcasts, the, Vern's, the Vern Vlasic Show. This um, Brooke Burrell, who had worked with you in the past, decided to write a piece about you as well. Is that right? Yeah, well, well that was the Vern Blazik Science Power Hour, yeah. which was my first podcast, which I did as a uh, character, um, kind of like a Stephen Colbert report, you know, because I didn't want to do a podcast. Right. Because the problem was, is people ask me to do things all the time, serve on committees, lead this initiative, review this work, re- help us with this grant. And I always had to turn people down because I can't do everything. Right. And so for them to say, well, you have time to do your stupid podcast, you know, <laughs> I didn't want to go there. When did so, that podcast begin, by the way? I, just I, had I think 2014 sometime. So this was lo- a, like a, a good year, time before. A year before, mm-hmm. yeah, a year before this one. And, and it was, I did the voice of... Because I don't, you won't know this. Maybe you do. You know, Coast to Coast AM. I don't. So this is an overnight TV show or, or radio show where they talk about UFOs and Bigfoot and psychics <laughs> okay. and all that. It used to be done by a guy named Art Bell, and so I it, I parodied that, and I used similar music and I used similar everything and I used similar, um, only that instead of being from uh, Pahrump, Nevada, outside Area Fifty One, it was from. Um, uh, it was from Tillamook, Oregon, outside right. of the desert of Tillamook, Oregon, outside of Area 52. Okay, right. All right, so, and, and, and the Science Power Hour was a half hour. So all of this thing is screaming parody. There's it, The artwork that went sure. with it was all like weird subgenius Devo kind of weird. And then eventually Vern is killed off in this kind of absurd way too, right? right? Yeah, he choked on some gluten-free pizza. It's very sad. But, but the whole thing was meant to be funny. And it was supposed to be science interviews with an entertainment edge. And that was the idea. And so you interviewed, um, uh, sorry, Brooke. No, I never interviewed Brooke. Actually, oh. so I wanted to interview Brooke. Mm-hmm. And so I sent her an email saying, can you do, do the uh, work with Vern Blazek about, about the, your book on bed bugs? Because mm-hmm. I, I always liked those kind of wacky topics. It is an interesting topic. Yeah. And so bed bugs, I thought this would be great. And so she thought, well, this is highly irregular. Now, did you ask her as Vern or as... Dr. Okay, I see. I I asked her as Vern, and then I asked her as me. And she totally flipped out. Okay. And she said, this is a a lack of transparency. You're not, you know, you're not. And I said, yeah, but it's like, it's it's theater. It's, you know, I'm a thespian. And so, but she refused to see the, you know, my side of that story. She viewed it as a scandal. And she's written it as a scandal. 
Yes, and that was only about a month after this New York Times article came out, too, so it was kind of like a kick in the ribs there. Oh, jeez, it was awful. And because she framed this as an entire scandal on the uh, heels of the perceived scandal. So right when I'm trying to dig myself out of the hole, she kicks me back down. <laughs> right, to, to grab onto this podcast and say this is an example of you trying to hide from the public. Right, right? be non-transparent. Behind Vern. Yeah, but, but, but and, and I guess technically she was right because I didn't want to be in the public eyeball as a podcaster, right? Yeah. I wasn't, you know, I wanted to be Vern Blaythick, the Vern Blaythick via Power Hour, who was, you know, if people are interested, there was a guy in Chicago when I grew, was growing up who used to do the uh, voice when they would have the technical outages. And he would, even some people will remember, you know, back then, he always had somebody who would come on and say, we now return to Hogan's Heroes, starring Bob Crane. And, and that was um, that was this guy who had this very weird voice with a lisp that I was emulating. And that was the idea, was to be able to do science communication without it being me doing science communication. Right, right, right. So after that article came out, was there more fallout as a result of that, or was it already just all in the in the fray? Horrible, yeah. horrible. It was horrible. It was just more horrible. And she knew it was going to be, and that's what was so bad. Yeah. Because I met with her one on one in Maryland at a conference or at a visiting a, a university. Yeah. And you know, I sat across from her, and I was already totally beat from the New York Times thing. Right. You know, this was already when I was. I, I wouldn't say. I was ever suicidal, but I sure felt that I needed that if if I were to drop dead, I would be okay. Right. And I used to think that. And um, here I was, totally beat. And then she was telling me she's going to do the story. Yeah. And I'm sitting with her, and she's doing the interview, and I'm saying, begging her, do not do this, please do not do this. This isn't news. This isn't news. Yeah. And uh, the calculus in her mind was that it was. Yeah. And I, I can't help but feel that it was a little bit malicious. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. It was written in a way such to tread cautiously. It wasn't as blatant as the New York Times piece, but it was definitely damaging, and it was intended to be, I think. Yeah, and and, and it was, I think that was it. You know, I, I do feel it was malicious, and, and, you know, and I countered it in kind of creative ways by, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I leaned into it. You know, I did an interview with myself as Vern Boyzak, right. and then, uh, and... It just made it very obvious that we were this, that it was one person, right? Right. And, but, you know, it, it, it didn't make it go away. Yeah. I mean, it, it, when people are out to get you, they will do anything to get you. Yeah. And that's it. And there's a multitude, though, of articles in support of your, oh, of yeah. your work, which is, I'm sure, a big relief to see you in the middle of all of oh, this, God. even though they're small. It's not the New York Times, but there's still people that are out there supporting your work in 2015. No, and it's very hard for me to do this without being teary-eyed because it was, um, you know, Stephen Novella, David Gorski, Allison Van Edenham, Maria Trainer, um, and so many others um, uh, who... Are the only reason I survived it. Yeah. Because uh, there, it was people who saw it as the new McCarthyism and the attack on science, right? And taking out a scientist, and that um, I'm so grateful for that, right? Because I, I could never have survived it without. Absolutely, that's huge. And and on your own blog too, you wrote some pretty effective articles. I think talking about the the incident, talking about the things that led up to it. But yeah. I guess this would be the first time you rehashing the entire thing from start to finish. Yeah, this is I you know I I, I kind of keep this 
I don't know. I don't. I get emotional when I think about it. I get. It's um, the the reason it really bothers me is just because I had this crazy idea to go out and do good things, and spent a lot of time doing good things, and that is what gave me satisfaction. Yeah. You know, like being a department chair, looking out for faculty and students, uh, running my own research program, uh, doing great things in my community, doing all those things were really important to me, and those were all taken. Yeah, and this has crippled your ability to do those things. And it takes your ability to do them, right? And in fact, now we're in 2021, and your process of rebuilding is still slow, isn't it? it? Well, the the fact that the university has forbid me from doing science communication as part of my my appointment, that is such a shot because it not only, in my opinion, infringes on academic freedom, which, you know, as a tenured faculty member, I should be having that latitude. Um, it, it also is counter to what every single scientific organization says we need to be doing yeah. and what I'm winning awards from those organizations for yeah. doing. And, um, and so it, it is really hard because I have value and validation from every place except for the place I care about most. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, kind of being the, kind of being the, the, um, you know, the, the bad guy under your own roof right. is, is really, it's exhausting and it really, it takes away your interest in other aspects of the of participating in, in the enterprise. And that, that, that's another real sad part. I'm sure. Because I, I could do a lot of good things. And um, I'm trying to get that spark back. I'm trying yeah. to, you know, rebuild that. But, you know, I think the only thing I can really do is, uh, you know, put two feet on the floor and grunt through my normal job. Yeah. And then... Uh, hopefully have a little bit of sunshine when someone asks me to do a podcast or you know or i get invited to do a talk that i can do on my vacation time, sure. independent of the university yeah. um and and you know i still get that charge you yeah. know of being and, and working with students is great and you've won awards too in the time since that article has been published since yeah. all this has happened <laughs> sure. well, you want to talk a little bit about that yeah it was the american society of plant biologists uh um, public service award the borlaug communications award from cast which is a big one yeah that's and huge it's a huge one especially to be awarded for your communications in a time where you, you the university that you work for has rendered you unable to work under their name <laughs> well yeah and well back then i still could do that but yeah. now no and now i can't now I it's yeah, this year um, i'm recognized with the um, one that I haven't been recognized with yet, so I probably can't talk about it. Oh, it's a secret. <laughs> but coming out uh, August third, and then um, uh, and then the American so- American Association of Agri Women. I mean, really, really great organizations yeah. go. We love what you do, and so that means a lot. Yeah. And you know, that's the wind beneath my wings. And then yeah. that plus folks like you. Yeah. You know, I have you and uh, Faith um, and a whole bunch of students who want to be in communication space. Absolutely. And so they are uh, writing and doing websites and uh, writing blogs yeah. and write, doing podcasts and writing for other um, big science blogs. And, um, and I'm able to edit. Yeah. And I'm able to find these opportunities. So even though I'm not technically doing it, yeah. I'm doing it. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm having... I'm still getting, I'm getting my, I'm getting my box checked by, I mean, let me put that in a more eloquent way. I'm finding the satisfaction I lost in helping people covertly yeah. <laughs> so that they can actually go become 
better communicators. Yeah, and, and, and as you know, my interest has been in science denialism for quite a while. We've yeah. talked about that quite a bit, and you know, the, the what you've gone through here has very much bolstered my interest, and I want to look at these organizations hard and say, why do these, why do these types of organizations exist? Why do anti-technology beliefs exist? And so, and, and what is the damage they do? Yeah, I mean, this and, is the damage. And, and, this is it. Oh, I, I t- I'll tell you, I mean, it, it's... Yeah, it is. Um, you know, personally, I mean, you can see I get emotional about this stuff, and it does affect me. But, you know, I think about, because for me, it's about how do you get, you know, I've been to places like Uganda, and I've been to places in China and where you see poverty, like, you know, hear people talk about poverty, and it's a guy who's on the corner with a sign. When you talk about pure poverty and slums and places where people have no medical care and are starving for food and are turning to crime to feed their families because it's all you've got and um, we have solutions for them that are not allowed and that just tears me apart because as a fighter I want to I want to go do it I want to bring that technology to them I want to break that dam down so they can have access to it and to the point where I would you know, if someone gave me, you know, a, a, a dump truck full of full of golden rice, I would smuggle it in and throw it around. I mean, sure. It, you know what I mean? It, I even if I had to break the law to, to do the right thing, um, that's my wiring. And I agree personally. I do. I understand the controversy behind genetically modified organisms. I understand why it's scary and why it's unsettling. But I think it's technology itself is morally neutral. It's about how we use that That's technology right. to do good. And, and it's about trusting the, the wisdom of scientists. Yeah. And, and academic scientists and independent scientists. That we're the ones who, who want it done safely yeah. and correctly. And because we've got nothing, we don't have a dog in the. Well, I don't. I don't want to say that term. Um, we don't have a. What's the what's what do we not have? A horse in that race? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't have a horse in that race. I try to avoid dog fighting. And sure, yeah, it's a I little, can. it's a little I, visceral. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I just adopted one. It's full of holes, and I feel really oh, no. bad for them. Um, uh, but equally, it's the responsibility of scientists to be out there talking about these things, and you've paid the price for doing exactly that. Yeah, and and then and then the worst part is is that when other people see what happens, they say, "I can't do it." Yeah. So it is by, it's what they call the spiral of silence. Yeah. That once you start, once you can pick off a few of the key people who are making a voice and make them silent. Yeah. Now everybody else becomes silent because they don't want to risk being silenced and being smeared and living the rest of their life being Google dead. Yeah. It's terrifying stuff. It really is. And like you said earlier in 2015 you were talking to people about it and people are too scared to associate with industry and it shouldn't be that way i think academics and industry have a have an appropriate level of overlap i don't think all the way overlapped is good but i think there's an appropriate level there and i don't think people should be punished for it and i want to ask you you know looking to the future where, where do you see your career trajectory now what's next yeah it's hard to say i mean it's really hard to say i think some days i i um I think I just want to quit academic yeah. science, and uh, and I and I do feel that way very honestly. Like I would love to just go out and consult with folks on uh, on communication strategy, on helping people be better speakers, better writers, um, working with companies to help them uh, frame their campaigns better. Maybe work with politicians. Yeah. You know, help them. You know, here here's because I see examples of customer service. Um, or uh, politicians speaking or people on TV and they do it exactly wrong. 
Yeah. <laughs> Especially in customer service. I think I can make a big impact. But these are, you know, but I still love the research. Yeah. And, um, and the big thing for me is, is that, you know, if I don't show up to teach the classes in August, right. who's going to do it? Right. You got students signed up and it's going to end up falling on another faculty member who doesn't have time to do it. Right. So it's, it's, I feel a sense of obligation to the university and to the faculty and to, uh, you know, the folks who have been supportive to yeah. not just bail as attractive as that would be. That makes total sense. Yeah. And, and, and you know, my, and my, my real passions are in, in helping and teaching others. Yeah. And, you know, I, get, I guess maybe I can try to find that, you know, in, in what I'm doing with students like you, you know. Absolutely. So it's, it's, it's in, you know, trying to keep the podcast going, trying to keep other things going. It is getting harder to get guests. I'm sure. I don't know exactly why. I think everybody's just, I get too much of the, well, I'm too busy. Yeah. It's like you're too busy to talk about what you do for a half hour, right. <laughs> but it is maybe a residue of I don't want to stick my head up over the fence yeah. because now that we're doing, uh, we're working with COVID or right. we're um, working with a vaccination against cancer sure. or we're working on, uh, you know, whatever, they don't want to stick their head over that parapet because they don't want to become the next person in the sights of somebody who has an agenda that's going to work against them. And when you look at it, you know, the controversy behind GMOs in 2015 and the controversy behind COVID denialism, you know, and oh, totally. 2021 and 2020 is, they're parallels. You it's know? all very the same in a lot of ways. The difference is with COVID is we did the experiment. Right. And we saw exactly how all of the elements of science denial play into it. And yeah. right now we're at a, at a spot where we're seeing the unvaccinated being the major group who are coming down with new variants yeah. and are being the factories where new variants are created that are now going to imperil the people who did get vaccinated and follow the science. And it is tragic. It yeah. is truly tragic because while there's a meaningful reason to doubt science and to do your own research and to make sure you know what you're talking about, there's so much mis misinformation out there that it's treacherous. That's right. Now, I know I know nurses and physicians who, especially nurses, who are ready to quit sure. because there are people who are my age who've been in it their whole careers. They put in their 30, 35 years. And they said, I can't go back and do this again. Yeah. You know, they're expecting us to be okay. Yeah. And we're, we're only people we're getting are sick people who chose to not protect themselves and chose not to protect me. Yeah. You know, and, and that's what they, that's what they say. Yeah. So I understand. Yeah. And that, and you know, it's a, it's a, it shows the critical importance of continuing science communications. Yeah. And to and to make it a priority. No, it's a, it is, and it's something that I think we should continue to push in the, in our universities. We need to have more of it. Um, some universities, there, there there are some really good universities that are starting some outstanding programs, and I know that because they asked me how you would do it. Yeah. And so it, it's nice that the some of the big players are interested in doing this. When, Absolutely. And, and and it's a little bit of validation that maybe you know, and it, it's been true in a lot of the science that I've done over the years. Is um, at the time I did it, people said you're kind of, you know, nuts for thinking that way, but um, ended up coming around in the long run. Yeah. And so a lot of our original ideas weren't so hot in the beginning, but are adopted later. Yeah. And so this is probably the same thing. You yeah. know, someday down the road they might go. You know, when the university says, "Let's start at a science community. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they'll know who to call. Say, well, no, no, they'll they'll they won't know who to call. Actually, they'll they'll say. Wasn't there a guy at one time <laughs> who used to work here? Who, yeah, you know, who knows? You know, yeah. and 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 it, but that's that's 
it's just the way things are. Administrations change, people change. There's kind of a revolving door in the leadership of universities. And someone may come in and say, this is really what we want as a cornerstone of what we do and is consistent with our, our mission and land grant university system. And we are going to be leaders in this. And hey, you Fulta, you know, you're an idiot, you were an idiot, but now we're going to, we're going to, uh, give you this new job of leading this. Yeah. And, and I will be happy to do that. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, that's a huge strength of yours is to be able to say, of course, you know, and, and that the science is more important. Yeah. 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 And, and so the, the theme of this whole thing is, you know, for folks listening is, you know, you can't ever, don't ever be a victim. Um, find out how you're going to bounce back and do it and do it full throttle. And remember that, you know, it, it, it's, it's easy to quit. It's really easy to quit, but you have to just be, when, when, when someone goes after your integrity and your reputation, you just have to build it faster than they can tear it down, which in the days of the internet, is really tough. <laughs> you know, they can, they can, they can tarnish you to 50 million people in a few hours. And, you know, the podcast it, it will never have that many listeners and anything I write will never be seen by that many people. And then also just surround you by people who matter. Yeah. And that's the other good advice, yeah. you know. Um, you know, if you can at least be the trusted voice in your universe, your immediate universe. Um, I once had the brilliant quotation of "surround yourself um, with people who love you and no CPR." <laughs> I think that's great advice. <laughs> yeah, it works. Well, you know, I'm so glad that this podcast is still going strong. I'm really honored to be here for the 300th episode, and I'm glad that you're able to talk about all this in yeah, one no, go. Thank you. This is really a lot of fun. I mean, it's, it's fun to be the guest. Yeah, yeah, I'd imagine so. It's fun to be the host. <laughs> yeah, it's, I always say that the guests are the reason that it's has been as good as it's been and as long as it's been. And, um, you know, and, and you know, maybe it's nice to be able to be a guest yeah <laughs> contribute yeah. to that a little bit yeah this is something that you needed to, to talk about in full i think it's a great thing to talk about on this 300th episode and i hope that you know we'll be here for the 400 yeah that's true yeah well, the funny part is is i think a lot of people don't know about the details of all this stuff sure and they don't know you know and and uh, i think it gives people a much greater appreciation for the struggles that you've gone through to be able to be where you are um you know especially when you keep that kind of private you know um it's it's good to be able to talk about all those things uh, so so okay we'll do 400 again will you oh yeah i'd be i'd love to be here for 400 we can talk about you know the 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 arc upward because it sounds like things are moving upward for you yeah it's it's like two years and a few weeks yeah um but in the meantime you should co-host a few with me oh yeah that'd be fantastic i'd love that and we will be co-hosting an episode of the science facts and fallacies podcast here while um cameron english is having his child that's right that'll be an exciting thing Please that. tune into that. Yeah. yeah, so we'll co-host that one probably in like two weeks or something. I guess that's right, or whenever so, the baby decides to come for yeah, camera. It's, it's, it's on its way. So that's science facts and fallacies. Kevin and Allie will be doing that one. But uh, you know, um, I guess, do you want to do the end part or should I do that? Go ahead. You, can, you so take the So thank end you for part. listening to Talking About the Podcast or to review on iTunes or mm-hmm. you can do our podcast media. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was pretty efficient. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I was going to write it down for Allie. It's easier just to say. Thanks for listening, everybody. We really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. And we'll talk to you again next week. All right. Thanks. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are. But it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. <laughs>
which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.